Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Red Shirts and Runabout. Part of the Heroes Podcast Network. This is your uh, weekly Star Trek podcast. As with you, as always, I am one of your hosts, Gregory Bosco. And guys, you guys are always here every week, but go ahead and introduce yourselves. Yep, Jeremy Munkin. Let's welcome back Derek also. Hey guys, it's good to be back. Yeah, it wasn't the same without you, man. But we struggled through it. We did all right. <laughs> I'm sure you guys did fine. I will listen to the episode, though. I make it a point to... Listen to anything I'm not on, so oh, we I'll, do uh, we do shit talk you pretty bad. Ah, oh, it hurts. It's not it till hurts. the very end, though. <laughs> well, it's just easier to do it when you're not around. You know, it's of course, of course, yeah. Uh, but anyways, we're going to be talking about as you know, Discovery since it's back, the most recent episode, the War Without, the War Within, which I think is the first time I've actually got the title right. The first time saying it. It's a pretty straightforward yeah, one. Yeah, pretty straightforward, nice yeah. and simple and pretty direct. Guys, it's a very original series spoilers, title. Like we always do, what's your 10-second reaction to the show? Uh, I mean, it was it was a really strong episode. I I it's it's interesting. I feel like they're setting up a lot of stuff for having only one episode left of left of the season, and it's I I think next week's episode is going to be very dense and i'm excited to see it but this felt like a very transitional episode where it wasn't i mean nothing was was blown up for the most part it's it was all kind of exposition it was it was one of those like if you play D D, you know you know what a prep session is and then what like an actual mission section is it's, it feels like everything was kind of in between action sequences mm-hmm yeah, I think that's probably a good way to look at it. Um, I think part of the issue is that originally Discovery only had a 13-episode order, and so things should have ended with them jumping out of the Mirror Universe and probably would have left on some type of cliffhanger. But instead, they had to come up with two more episodes of content here. So we've got Giorgio and what you know what happens with her at the end of the last episode and um, having to kind of set stuff up for the end of the season. I would imagine not a whole lot gets resolved next week. Yeah. Um, but I liked it. I thought it was a really good episode. I like character-driven parts of Star Trek. Um, as much as the action sequences can be fun, it's always been about the characters. It's the the human adventure, right? Um, so to kind of see what happened with, with Ash Tyler and the crew and him and Burnham and uh, what you know is going on with... Admiral Cornwall and Saru. There's there's just some cool stuff there. And Tilly is perfect again. As always, as always. She's still the most relatable character we've had on Trek in a long, long time, which isn't a bad thing. It's it, it's a good thing, and I'm kind of with you guys. It was it was a good episode. You know, there's always a negative to anything, but I, I I'm with you also, Derek. It's the 
it's easy to have a DS9 series where you have three seasons in a row where the story is just driving everything with the Dominion War versus kind of what Discovery's doing is, yeah, there's an overarching story, but the characters, you actually feel like the characters are living through it and that they're the focal point of everything, which I, I like that. And of course, yeah, I still have a crush on Tilly. That's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just some massive uh, character moments, right? You have Tilly going over to Ash. You have Ash uh, being uh, confronting Burnham. You have Saru having to, to deal with, um, at the end of the episode, of course, being displaced. But even earlier on, having to deal with an admiral who is essentially in shock in a battle situation. Um, Wait, are, we, are we in the spoilers territory now? <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> Oops. I think it's I, hard to avoid spoilers when talking about a TV show. Well, especially with a linear TV show like this one where, you know, the first second anything happens, it's effectively a progression of the plot from the previous episode. So everything is a spoiler. And again, to give Discovery yeah. credit, they don't waste a lot of time like a lot of TV shows do. Yeah, though, like, the second you're talking about Saru being displaced at the end of this episode, I, I have a lot to, like, jump on there, but we should probably hold off and, and keep things in sequential order. Yeah, but to your point, like, the show really just kicks off very quickly, right? I mean, they're back in our universe, and immediately, um, you know, a, a ship shows up. They're not answering hails, and they've got their shields up and weapons charged, and they get boarded. I mean, that was really intense. Also, I mean, their shields were up, and then Saru raises shields, but they still get boarded. What's that about? So I have a hunch. I think it's one of two things. Either one... The beaming began before the shields were up, and Saru's order just hadn't actually occurred yet, um, like hadn't been processed by whoever was responsible. Or because it's all Federation ships, much like in the Wrath of Khan, um, right? She would know their their harmonics and be able to override it. Exactly. Right. Like she immediately takes over the ship with her command codes. Mm-hmm. Right. I really did like the boarding party aspect because you had like the Andorian, you had a Vulcan, you had the humans. And they were not screwing around. I mean, it, for for like a half second, they were legit ready to, to to start shooting Discovery crew if they thought they were bad. Yeah. It did feel a lot like the resistance that we saw in the Mirror Universe. Yeah, when I saw that aggression against the Discovery, I was I was sure it was going to be because, like, Captain Killy and the, the Mirror Universe Discovery had been wreaking havoc. And they <laughs> thought that it was, it was going to be that crew. Mm-hmm. That's that's I I did not think about that, but that's really cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Now they did handle that really well. There's like a really simple throwaway line where Admiral Cornwall's like, "But we saw the debris of the Discovery," and Saru's like, "No, no, that was the Mirror Universe one. We switched places." Yep, the yeah. fame, the Star Trek hand wave obscured by the moon's magnetic field or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, it was a really easy loose end to tie up. Yeah, I f- I feel bad that. Uh, you know, Sarek, who's this huge character, uh, and has been, like, is probably one of the biggest connecting points through the other, from Discovery to the other series, is constantly just the second banana to whoever has the most domineering, not domineering presence in the room and is just used as a telepath. Because, like, even in, no matter what universe they're in, it's always just like, I'm giving commands. Sarek, go touch these people and see if they're telling the truth. It's like, this is the third time <laughs> we've seen that. That's a good point. 
Um, he does seem to take that position, but he's usually in an ambassador role. Yeah. So he he does have to kind of go with the flow, so to speak. But he's he's like Discovery's Deanna Troy. He's just like, well, let me see what you, they're up to. Oh, nope, they're they're telling the truth. It's a fair point. Um. So okay. So you know they get boarded. We find Cornwall, which is cool. We see that she's doing well because I mean, last we saw her, she was on a medical shuttle after being beat up pretty badly on the the Klingon ship. Um, yeah, she seems very ready to kill Lorca or something. She's like, "Where is that son of a bitch?" Yeah, right. I mean, that was pretty crazy because the last we left, you know, it was you know where Lorca had the the phaser under his bed, and she was basically going to strip him of his command because of, it, of what she believed to be PTSD, but was of course really the fact that he is a Terran counterpart. Um, and so I, I did think it was pretty interesting that they decided to mind meld with Saru and not Burnham. Yeah. Why do you think that was? I still get the feeling that Cornwell or Cornwall and company, they don't trust Burnham, but they do respect the fact that Saru was the first officer and now Saru's the captain. Mm-hmm. And I think they've been, I mean, it's kind of getting old with the whole, we don't trust Burnham, even though she's. You know, it's like the whole Dr. House thing. She saved the ship like 83 times now, and people are like, you're still that mutineer Burnham. Yeah. Specialist Specialist Burnham. Burnham. Yeah. I mean, it gets to a point where you either just throw her in the brig again or trust her. Quit with the limbo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the interesting thing now. Like, so the Discovery crew, we've, we've lost two of them. Uh, and our remaining stars of this show are a cadet and two non-commissioned officers. Because Ash Tyler has now been stripped of his, his you know, rank and everything. And uh, she's still a specialist. So, like, a majority of the crew are not Starfleet officers or even, like, Starfleet anything. Of the, the, the main cast. Yeah. It's interesting. You still, of course, you know, Stamets is the chief engineer and you have Saru as... as first officer but i mean it is like 50 50 <laughs> yeah it is it is interesting but they are starting to bring in some more some of the other characters though you know like detmer had uh, a little more to do in this which i thought was really great that we're finally seeing some payoff from these characters who've been kind of around i mean she was still really only just around she she came and said hey and that was like she's like a featured extra um i mean maybe i feel like it's I feel like there's going to be more there. I'm just not sure what yet. Yeah, I can I can definitely see in season two her filling the gaps of of characters that we've lost, like the uh, very angry first officer that got killed by the tardigrade, like whatever her spot was on the cast. Oh, the uh, the chief security officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to have point. to start introducing a few more characters to the main cast because we are used to those Star Trek ensemble cast where you have like what seven to nine main characters. And like you guys said, we keep losing them every episode. Well, I mean, you've got you've got your five main, and then you've got Cornwall, who's around right now. You've got Giorgio, who's back in the fold. So that, that brings you to seven. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if those two will stay, but at least for this next episode, they will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like The Walking Dead, where you have your, your core three that will never die, which would be like Saru, Michael, and Tilly. And right. And they'll probably... Other... other crew members will will come and go which i love i mean it's it's good to to see that mix up because you can get kind of bored of of certain characters constantly having problems Mm -hmm. 
That's yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, now, of course, so Cornwall takes over the ship. She is assumed command. Uh, Saru is still treated as acting captain, as far as you know, a field commission kind of thing. And then Burnham has to show Cornwall the Terran Georgiou. Yes, which I don't know how to describe it. But I, the whole interaction with Georgiou and the ship was actually my least favorite part of the episode. And it's really? mainly because it was the complaint I had a few weeks ago where I was worried they were going to do this and have it be like a whole Into Darkness Con type thing. Is kind of what they're doing now. They've got Giorgio pretty much ingrained into the ship, even though they have no idea anything about her aside from what Burnham's told them. Yeah. I mean, there's there's certainly an element of that where it's it's very much like she's she's their Hannibal Lecter or whatever and it seems like they're making a a very casual handshake deal with the devil um yeah i it, it does seem very abrupt and very ill informed for what they're trying to do well i mean think about it i mean i know this jumps ahead a little bit but it's it's part of this conversation i mean they make her captain of the ship so once this next mission here is over whatever it happens to be They've given her command of the most advanced ship in the fleet. Yeah, but that can't last, right? Like, it's not like she's a commissioned Federation officer. She thinks the Federation is a cult. Yeah, but does anybody really believe she's going to give the ship back up? Right, no. that's my point. Like, they've give, like in front of the whole bridge crew, they the Admiral gave her command of Discovery. But the only people that know she's Mirror whatever are the, tele, or the, the transporter officer and Saru and Michael. Right. So, at what point do they take the command away from her? Cornwall can't just take command away from Giorgio if the whole crew thinks it's the real Giorgio. Right. Right? So, when this next mission's over, what are they going to do with her? They can't just let her keep the ship, right? But people like Detmer were at the Battle of the Binary Star. Wouldn't they know she's dead? Well, that's the thing, right? Is that they, they thought she died on the Klingon ship, but was really taken captive. Oh, okay, so yeah. They wouldn't necessarily See, know. What I'm worried about is them hand-waving away, because Giorgio is, you know, we don't know the, her age, but so I'm going to guess the captain, based on the what they've talked about, she's 40, 42, 44, around that range. So she spent 40-some years in the Terran universe, in the Terran Empire, doing evil stuff, including eating Kelpians, and now she's been in the Prime Universe for like an hour, and they're like, alright, you're adjusted, go ahead, you're fine. And I'm hopeful that they don't get that lazy. Because, like, Game of Thrones does that all the time. They're like, Ironborn, don't rape and pillage. Okay, we won't. Good, they're converted. I'm like, that's not how this works. That's not how, like, cultures yeah. and societies work. Well, it's more like making a deal with the devil uh, rather than Hannibal Lecter. Because Lecter, I mean, he's still behind the glass. You know, they're not, like, letting him go on the investigation in Silence of the Lambs, right? Uh, but it is very much like the Into Darkness version of Khan, where you have taken this guy who was a bad guy, he was kicked off of Earth for being too extreme, and you've now put him in charge of the advanced research facilities, right, Uh, for war against the Klingons and the Romulans. This is the same thing. You've taken the emperor of the Terran Empire and made her command of the most advanced ship in a fleet that's been essentially decimated. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, and you know the first thing she's going to try and do once she has freedom is to go back to the Mirror Universe, now that she's in charge of a ship that can just do that, and and try and take it back over. Well, see, I I don't know if she'll want to go back, because her her idea was she was just going to die helping Burnham escape, because she knows that she's already lost lost the Empire. It's not going to be hers anymore. Yeah. So she may not want to go back, but, but then she'll she's try not... and take over this one. Well, that's the thing, right? She's certainly not going to just be captain of Discovery under the Federation. She may try and do something in the prime time. Well, and if you think about it, with how weak Starfleet is right now, and that's another complaint I have is in nine months, I mean, Starfleet was just absolutely devastated. So the Discovery and Lorca, at least under his command, was a hugely integral part of their of Starfleet's capabilities for defense. And again, it's yeah. like that yesterday's Enterprise episode where – it's like, oh, the war's been going very badly for the Federation. Forty billion are dead, and I'm like, did you guys even fight? I'm like, did you, just, yeah. did you just like, hey, the Klingons are fine? Yeah, just jump in a freighter and go in a direction. You'll avoid most of the death. And they kind of, they kind of allude to a little bit more of how, like, when uh, they get to Starbase One and it's all, it's devastated. Well, yeah, there was there was a point where they were saying Klingons were just setting fire to atmospheres, like they were just blowing planets out of the sky. Which, where the hell was that technology? A hundred years later, when we're fighting the Dominion. Hey, Klingons, keep that stuff around, man. Well, but see, that's the thing, though. That technology existed, but it was all outlawed by various conventions. I mean, remember, like, Cisco destroys the atmosphere of a planet just to flush out one of his old colleagues who's now in the Maquis. Yeah, true. Right? Like, so that technology exists, but it's basically outlawed. Well, if only one side outlaws it and the other side doesn't, that doesn't count. <laughs> well, that's the pro- that's the problem, right? Come on, Starfleet, get get your fangs out. You got you got pretty good ships. See, but that's that's Burnham's point versus Georgiou's point, right? Is that it is the ideals of the Federation that make it what it is. True. And when you sacrifice too many of those ideals, what separates you from the enemy? And I guess that's my worry about having them introduce Georgiou the way they did from the Mirror Universe is. You know, I just have that feeling we're going to get that the line from Into Darkness where intelligence alone doesn't need a war. You needed my savagery. And I'll be like, all right, here we go. Now, if they use the line word for word, I'll at least get a laugh. Because that's <laughs> something that's something this Giorgio is more so than Burnham or Saru or Cornwall. She's savage. She's not smarter than them or better than them. She's more savage and willing to do that kind of stuff than they are. You know, I don't know who's yeah. smarter than Burnham. I mean, she might be the smartest person she might actually be the smartest human we've had in, on Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, she has she has a, a an ability to access her intelligence that seems like more more clinical and more Vulcan. I mean, we have we've had Data, who's like pure pure information. It's it's kind of a street smarts versus book smarts, I guess. Yeah, but she's certainly like tactically, she's a very adept problem solver, which is cool. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the way they introduced George Joe, maybe some of that will rub off. Or, yeah, well, now that George Joe's back, maybe some of the way Burnham is will rub off on George Joe a little bit, which would make sense because that's kind of what Burnham wants deep down is to maybe make this George Joe nice and happy and kittens and rainbows. I don't think that will happen. Do we know? Do we know what year it is? So, Star Trek Discovery takes place in the year 2256. Now, with so many months going by, I would imagine it's probably 2257 by this point. Okay. So, the the actual Klingon War goes until when? 2290? So, here's the problem with that. 
uh, Memory Alpha, which is really our only primary source for information on, on a topic like this outside of one of the actual encyclopedias, which I guess I could go grab mine. It's in the other room. Uh, the the Memory Alpha has been updated to basically be the Discovery version, so it only shows the war to be a year long. Okay. Which, which is obviously not accurate. More than a year has passed, uh, but because the show is still going, you know, they can't really say. Um, there... The fan film Axanar was supposed to be about what they call the four-year war, which was this war over four years, um, where the the D7 was built and the, the Constitution class was built to combat the D7 and yada, yada, yada. So um, it's difficult to know what is canon at this point about the war. What I do know is that at, by 2256... And 2257, the Enterprise 1701 is already out in space under Captain Pike's command with Spock as the science officer. So that's out there already by this point. We know that. It's been established. Um, Right. So obviously this version of the war is different than what Axanar was going to use. I never really did the canon legwork um, to determine how accurate Axanar was going to be, uh, because it was a fan film production. I didn't, I didn't really look that deeply into it. Right. But as, as far as what could potentially be the outcome of next week's attack on Kronos itself, um, I mean, in, in the timeline of Star Trek Federation versus Klingon conflicts, it's basically war up until the Kittimer Accords, right? So no, no, that's, that's the thing. It's basically, uh, it's a, it's a stalemate. The war is not raging at that point. Like, during the original series, they're not at war with each other. It's almost like a whole series of... Well, it's like a series of border disputes that just never ends. And, you know, the history of Star Trek, the only... Really, the only confirmed wars we had for the longest time was the Earth-Romulan War before there was even a Federation. And that was 2156 to 2160, I think. Which the original storyline had had Earth forces nuking Romulus. Which, you know, might actually explain why the Romulans hate the humans for so damn long. And again, yeah. but it's always been so hard to explain with the Klingons because they were friends or they were they were like they were like friendly neutrals. Well not friendly, but um they were like true neutrals to each other. Then they have border disputes, now they have a war. And things kept getting hot and cold, hot and cold, hot and cold for basically fifty years of T V now. Yeah, I, right. so if if you go chronologically Right, you have Enterprise, which starts off with Archer going to Kronos to deliver an injured Klingon, and things are pretty intense. Then the Klingons already don't like us; um, they don't see us as much of a threat yet, of course, but they still don't like us. And then by the original series, you have you know some of the the famous start the original series episodes deal with the Klingons. You know, even you know, Trouble with Triples is a Klingon episode. Um, and it has to do with the fact that we don't trust them, they don't trust us, we'll brawl from time to time, but it, it, there's no official war. Uh, that's already happened, it's, it's over with. The, the, the There's always these kind of inconsistencies, though, because in Yesterday's Enterprise, the whole point of Yesterday's Enterprise is that the Enterprise C sacrificed itself protecting Klingon, a Klingon outpost from Romulans, and if that doesn't happen, then we are at war with the Klingons. Right. So even the Kittimer Accords, which happened during the Enterprise A time time frame, 
would not have held up past the Enterprise C if that event hadn't taken place. So it really seems that until the Enterprise D, until the 24th century, things are very contentious with the Klingons. And there's even a brief war in the 24th century. It was only, I think, a year long itself um, with the Klingons around the time of the Dominion yep. War. Right. Which which ended with uh, Worf, like, killing Gowron or something like that? Kind of. That was um. That was like one of five things that happened that helped end the war. The Dominion invading actually is what brought right. the Alliance back on because he, when they when they invade, they actually drove the Klingons out of Cardassian space. And Cisco was like, "I know one way we can solve this. Aha! We could re-sign the Kittimer Accords." And even Galron's like, "Uh, fine." But then they end up killing Galron yeah. for a whole series of things. They thought he was a changeling, and he wasn't, and. He ended up being... It was Gowron was the one launching a whole bunch of weird suicidal attacks with the Klingons. Yeah. Everything got very extreme. Yeah, Worf was like, oh, okay, we're we're losing, you know, 100 ships a week. We can't really afford this for much longer. That was a dark season. It was. Well, that last three seasons yeah. of DS9. But no, I, you, it's weird. The, the whole history with the Klingons in Star Trek, they've always been that kind of villain that they've been teasing of a war and they've been talking about a war... And I remember reading, I think it was Memory Alpha, the whole Yesterday's Enterprise, like Derek was mentioning when the Enterprise C, you know, doesn't defend them or whatever. Apparently what originally was supposed to happen is there was a line, I guess, in the show that the Enterprise C was helping them, but turned and ran. And so the Klingons thought the Enterprise ran away and left them to the Romulans, which is what caused the Klingons to go, you know, what the hell with the humans. Yeah. This is how they're going to be. We might they're, they're better off us conquering them. Which would have been kind of neat if they would have left it in there anyway, somehow. But back to discovery. All right, so I've done a little digging. I've done a little digging. So the four the four years war that is what the fan film Axanar was intended to be about is officially non canon. It is beta canon. It's part part of memory beta, um, and the only memory alpha reference to the four years war is actually a uh, role playing game. Hmm. Which role playing so, game? So. Um, it's actually called the oh, Four okay. Years War. Well, never mind then. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a role playing game uh, source book detailing a mid twenty third century war with the Klingons, a prelude to the Cold War seen in Star Trek original series, which I guess is maybe you know amplifies that stalemate a little bit into it being a full fledged Cold War. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of information on Memory Alpha about the Klingon Federation history. It is complicated. Long story short. The Klingons and the Federation don't really like each other, so at least not until much, much later. Well, and that should bring us back to kind of the state of things in Discovery, where Klingons taken over the the base closest to Earth, like Starbase 1, I think it's called, right? <clears throat> Killed everybody there, uh, instead of the, what was it, eight, 80,000? 80,000 Federation civilians or, you know, Federation humans or whoever who was on that people, people. living things uh, that were on that ship. It's like 235 Klingons and everyone is dead, which good, good work Klingons. Wow. Efficient. I mean, that's the real question, right? Is like, first off, how did they do it? You know, because unless you're vaporizing everybody, that's, you know, it's a lot of bodies. um, But the most interesting thing about that is it kind of became the driving force for Cornwall to talk to Lorel because she noticed that it wasn't the Klingon Empire seal. Right, because the houses have not been unified. The houses are out just causing destruction. 
Yeah, they're all right, fighting exactly. like 24 independent wars just all against the Federation. Which, one thing that's interesting about the way they did the Starbase 1 attack is they talk about, you know, the 80,000 casualties. But you guys will have to refresh my memory. The, the Zindi attack on, Ur- on Earth was, the what, initial, 7 million? The uh, initial deaths yes. were 7 million, and I think as more reports came in, it ended up being like 18 million. I, I feel high? like every every few episodes they kept getting new numbers before they went into that uh, cloud, and mm. it ended up being over 10 million, okay. definitely. But, I mean, I wonder if whatever they're about to do to Kronos will become whatever the fabled light of Kaelas is that, that brings the people back together. Because they're going to do something to Kronos. Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, right? Is what are they going to do? Because obviously you don't put the Terran Giorgio in command if you're just doing a mapping no. mission. No, you do not. And Giorgio's, even if it was that only, excuse me, even if that was the intent was just to have Giorgio do the mapping because she knows Kronos... Terran Empire Giorgio is not going to be like, yep, this is all we're doing. The mission is complete. We have hit the four waypoints. We're going home. Well, also, she's, not, she's not going to do that. That was that was something that I was a little bit confused about because they were they were talking about how they need um, more distinct intel on the Klingon Empire or the Klingon forces, and they have they have the entire memories of Voke in a very willing to help Ash Tyler. Um, so I'm surprised, like. Why would they go from an information source from an alternate dimension who might not have any idea what this dimension's stats are actually like to Voke, whose brain is trapped in a very willing to help out Ash Tyler, who could just tell them everything that he knows? Um, I mean, that, that's a good question, right? I mean, maybe it has something to do with they're not sure if they can trust Ash, but at the same time, how can they trust right. Terran and Georgiou? You know, so I think it's a fair question. I think trusting either of them at this stage is highly Especially if risky. Saru's around Giorgio and like a big pot of boiling water. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if, is anybody ever going to mention that again? How, you know, it's like, I don't know, they ate they ate a Kelpian in the Terran Empire. And like, oh, here's Command of the Discovery. And you know, Burnham's got to be like, all right, this is, well, this Saru, is still kind of weird. Well, Saru now knows that, that Michael ate a Kelpian because Giorgio is just like, yeah, we dined on a Kelpian's intestines like yesterday, and Saru's just like click click. And you guys mentioned Ash Tyler, and we we didn't really get a chance to talk about him because the whole plot just kind of railroaded him to the side a little bit this episode. But I will say I actually enjoyed how he's sitting alone eating and all this stuff, and you know Tilly goes over to kind of sit with him. And the thing I like about that is that's what a human would do if they see a friend. Or a former colleague in pain, you know. It's always it's always kind of thing the thing they do in movies. The one person sits isolated or whatever, and that's it. But that's typically not what people do. Yeah, but at the same time, he snapped the neck of a guy, and it's like he's his body has been used to kill one of their crewmates, and it's it's a complicated thing. I don't I don't know that I would be that quick to forgive, especially when we're seeing these like wholesale death and destruction numbers from his military force like i mean like imagine being in world war ii and a guy who you know has the genetic body of a you know access power is just sitting in your cafeteria next to you it would be hard because he his his people have killed all of their family and friends like destroyed their home planets the the fact that anybody went over there and were like hey dude what's up just it's it's incredible. But even at that point, Stamets is already kind of... Oh, Stamets is still... He, he wants him to suffer. I don't I don't know that that was a forgiveness from Stamets. 
No, I don't yeah. think it's a forgiveness, but Stamets did say, well, good, at least that means you yeah. might be human after all. Well, because you know, it's a difficult position for everyone, right? You want to believe that this is now really the Ash Tyler personality and Voke is gone. You want to believe that because the Federation, that's what it's about. It's about trying to see the best in everyone. But at the same time, you know, do we know if this is really Ash Tyler and Voke is gone? Does Ash even know? Ash may be telling the truth and Voke may still be in there to rear his head at some point in time, right? We It's so, so much unknown about these procedures that... It's hard to know if you can't. Well, until he said it best, it's it's not Ash and it's not Voke. It's someone new. It's someone new that has the the emotional personality of Ash Tyler, but the memories of both of them. And you can't really like if you remember everything that Voke remembered, you remember what he felt and what he thought about things, and that's that's a part of your personality. I'm gonna go ahead and guess that they're done with the whole Ash Tyler storyline with that though. It's just my assumption. I could be entirely wrong. I think they're done with the whole Tyler Voke thing. I don't think it's ever going to come up again with any kind of significance, like him still being Voke secretly. I think they're legitimately done. And the reason for that is it was, what, like six episodes ago where Culber was talking about, oh, if they would have done anything to his mind, we would have known. But then it turns out that's exactly what they did, is exactly what Culber said yeah. they couldn't do. Well, I I doubt it because he is still... The torchbearer, he, Voke is still Takumva's torchbearer. And if, if the underlying plot thread of the Klingons is that they need to be reunited in order to be like defeated or negotiated with, then the light of Kales is going to have to come back at some point to unite them. And Ash Tyler, like genetically, he's, he's still Voke and Voke is the torchbearer of the light of Kales. Yeah, maybe, but it depends on how many Klingons know what happened. True, but I mean, if if it's if we are to believe Klingon prophecy as as a mystical like truth thing, then I mean, he's he's a part of it, and he literally walks the line between Klingon and human. So if there's going to be some grand peace driven, I feel like the fact that he is both in one package will play a pretty significant role. I mean, he's not, he probably isn't going to, you know, pull off a rubber mask and say, I'm Vogue. haha. But, but his, his, yeah, <laughs> his vogueness is still clearly in play. It's a good point. I, I do think that, and, and Lorel is still on the discovery. They're still bringing her into the conversation. They're still continuing that existence of the relationship between her and Ash from that standpoint. So, What's going to happen with her? At some point, you're going to have to explain her away. See, I think somehow she's going to end up being the overall light to Kaylas. Something's going to happen when they're when they're doing their Chronos thing, and she's going to escape. And somehow she's going to escape her the, the cell, not the ship. And she's going to die. And she's going to be that unifying factor behind the Klingons. I think it's going to be her. Oh, and I not think Tyler. when we saw um, Mirror Voke as kind of the leader of men. Uh, of of the uniting of the aliens against the Terran Empire, Empire, I think that was foreshadowing of of his ability to bring people together, or whatever alien races have instead of people things. I mean, it's an interesting point because from what we know of the counterparts, so much is truly similar. Yeah. So I, I think you make a very good point. I think that's very possible. Um. So what else do we have in this episode? Of course, we you know we do have his run-in with Stamets, which I thought was a really 
well done scene. Anthony Rapp just really nailed it. Um, but that's really all you get from him for the most part um, until they do the big terraforming that job was, on the moon. That was an incredible sequence for a serialized TV show. With those spin pods and all that CG and the terraforming of that world, that is just like it's so much better than anything you saw in any of the next generation movies, even. <laughs> well, it has been like fourteen years since we've had a, a, a TNG movie, so let's just keep that in mind. But <laughs> like looking, I, I've watched Enterprise fairly recently, and seeing the CG that they used for like the weird lizard people that were crawling on ceilings and everything looked like a bad like model from a 90s game and and then this it just was incredible look it wasn't better than Worf's purple space bazooka in star trek insurrection that's still the highlight of star trek cgi hey, <laughs> hey. now hey. the only thing I, I i'm gonna admit i didn't like the whole bloom thing because again one episode ago they're talking about hey we're running out of spores and this could be bad and blah 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 and then 15 minutes later they're like i have a plan and this is the most amazing plan ever. And by the way, I have all these probes specifically designed just for this plan. And I'm like, wait a second. That kind of takes away from what he just did an episode ago. Yeah, it was all very convenient. It was too convenient, you know, even for me. Yes, the scene looks amazing. Let's just put that aside. They, they, they are, the $8 million an episode that they are spending on this show is clearly being used yeah. well. Everything looks good. Um, but that was such a convenient plot point, you know, because there was that... Here's here's my rewrite of what they could have done to make all of that work so well, is they say they, in the mirror universe, they detonated that that reaction that released all of this mycelial energy into the world, they should have just said, well, now there's all of these, like, mycelial radicals, the the universe itself is primed to have, like, all, all these new spores. So all they would have had to do is tie it to the thing that they just did to say, like, it'll it'll bloom the whole planet instantly because there's still raw mushroom energy to be to be tapped into. And I think that would have been fine because that's a very techno, trekno babble thing to do. But they didn't do that. And instead, they, they spent the episode before talking about how, you know, and even you know, earlier in the episode, well, we can't jump to Earth. We're, we're out of spores. Right. There's none left. The whole crop was dead. And that's not true, like, at all. No, on the ship it was. Uh, yeah, but they they had other samples, and then they had an ability to terraform an entire moon in, apparently, a few hours. Well, they had, they had the, the, like, original sample that he, he bred everything from, but their, their spores they used all, in all the missiles in the mirror universe. I mean, they, they went through every source of like live active spores in the course of getting back to the prime universe. Yeah, no, 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 I, I know that, but they didn't say, hey, we're out right now and we can't get any unless we do this. It was straight up, we're out, we don't have any, there's nothing we can do. And then all of a sudden it's, except grow an entire Oh, I mean, he didn't, he didn't have that... Yeah, they didn't go that route, but it almost it almost would have been better if something would have gone wrong during the during the spore implantation. And Stamets is like, "Well, the good news is we've got some spores. The bad news is we have enough to get to Kronos, but not enough to get back." Because that would have added just some tension for them to go, "Okay, can we get in there, do the scan, and get the information to Starfleet so Starfleet can jump in and save our asses?" That would have been at least a little bit more suspenseful. 
My problem with that, though, is they keep using the spore drive as this huge crutch, right? Where when it's active, they can basically do anything that they want. And when they run out of fuel for it, it's the end of the world. And at some point, you got to lean on other things. Yeah. I agree with that. You know? You know what I mean? Like, the basically the whole premise for this show has been the spore drive. Yeah. I mean, there's the other thing was Cornwall's basically saying... It's, it's too risky to fly through warp, and then they fly through warp, and there was no risk, and then they fly through warp <laughs> again, and nothing happened. So, like, the the lack of uh, fuel was undercut by, hey, we've got all the fuel, and the, the excess of risk to just flying around was undercut by the fact that they flew from one side of the quadrant to the next and never really encountered any trouble. Yeah, not not a single, like, raider or anything. And you kind of hint on a topic, Jeremy, that Star Trek has been wholly inconsistent with for 50 years. Of They go war- they use warp drive to get from A to B to C. And some shows you can't fire during warp drive. Some shows you can. You know, even Into Darkness, there's the whole scene where, you know, Mark Carroll, what are you worried about? We're at warp. And she's like, oh, no, he, he's got advanced warp capabilities. He can attack you at warp. And he's like, what? That's un... What do you mean? And in this case, she's like, yeah, traveling through warp is bad. Also, why is Cornwall Admiral? She's the least competent Admiral I've ever seen. Like, we've seen corrupt Admirals who kind of are shady, but and we've seen Admirals that are just, like, perfect and always right. She just kind of sucks at it. She's the peacetime Admiral, though. She is the explorer. She is the Admiral who was meant to give the Federation its original mission of exploring strange new worlds, right? That's who she is. That's what she's good at. That's what her history is. And she's taken out of her element in this war. Keep in mind that it's been nine months. The The discovery was uh, was thought to be destroyed with everyone dead. Billions of people, civilians, children have been killed. The Federation is near collapse. And then Starbase 1, which is as as close to Earth as you could basically get, um, you know, without being in the solar system. It's one AU. Uh, it uh, it's completely destroyed. I mean, it's a crushing moment for her. I think it's a hundred AUs. Actually, a, 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 oh, I'm sorry. One AU. Hundred AUs. You're right. <laughs> totally right. Yeah, you're right. Totally right. Hundred AUs because it's at like the right. edge of our solar system. A uh, hundred AUs. Uh, but, like, even then, like, they, the Klingons could get to Earth in, like, not even right. ten minutes. Well, and that's what all the people on the the big everybody come to Kronos and b- blow up Kronos call uh, near the end was saying was, like, well, if we abandon Earth, Earth is screwed. And that's a perfectly valid point. But at the same time, I mean, they're they're putting so much on the line with this plan. And the fact that anybody would get behind it. Is crazy, which I guess is why they have to basically fly into the planet and say, like, we'll we'll do all the hard work, we'll put ourselves through all of the danger, and then everybody else come in and just help us F shit up. Well, and on that topic, one thing that Discovery has not done, whether by choice or just because they didn't have enough time in all the episodes, is these Klingons don't seem as attached to Kronos as, like, the Next Generation Klingons do. You know, Next Generation, they talk about Kronos all the time. In this episode, in this series, they kind of talk more about Klingon unity or remain Klingon. I almost don't, I almost wonder if these Klingons would even care if they're like on the edge of Earth space, like in orbit. 
and they're like, Kronos is being attacked. I don't know if all the Klingon houses are going to come back to Kronos. So what if, I think some of them might actually want to be like, wait a second. Earth is on their knees, literally. We're orbitally bombarding their cities. Why do we care? Well, that's why I think everything is going to come around full circle. Because before the Battle of the Binary Stars, they ignited the light of Kaelas, and all of the houses arrived. Even though they're scattered to the winds and don't necessarily feel like a united Klingon race, they still came to it. So if we see a second shining beacon of Kaelas on Kronos itself and they see the threat to their, their home world, or we see some other unifying force, then maybe next week is what we see, you know, from from A to Z, we see the light again, and the houses are reunited. And then we have the, the Klingon Empire that becomes the real threat moving forward. We don't see these these house scuffles like we... Okay, this this would be horrible, considering how badly they're beating the hell out of the Federation as 24 divided houses. They are, but they're also scattered real thin, which, I mean, they might be at the far reaches of, of what they're capable of maintaining from a, a battlefront. Yeah, and I, I think, though, to, to the point about the Light of Kalis, I think that they all are truly Klingon, and Kronos is their home, but when they're out in space, they're just kind of vying for power and for, you know, uh, you know, for for points, so to speak, in this big match that they're having. But if their home is really under threat... I think that would that would unite them. Well, that was a big that was kind of the point of the conversation between Cornwall and Laurel was like what the hell is the point of all of this? Like what do you what do you think you're accomplishing cuz the houses are not united, the Klingon empire is not strong, the houses are just breaking shit and it's like you're you're not taking any kind of part in reunifying which was your your, you know, cult leader Takumva's plan to begin with, you have just, you know, kicked the hornet's nest and now everybody's dead. So that's, I think that's why Lorel is going to become a much more uh, active participant in the Federation's efforts to get all the Klingons back to Kronos, because that will unify the houses. Ah, you see, you're buying into my Lorel's going to be the new light of Kalos. I can hear it, Jeremy. I can hear it. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> the, you know. <laughs> but Lorel isn't the torchbearer. Vogue She'll is be the, the torchbearer. Maybe. It does seem to get passed around. I just like the actress playing the character, and I, I think she does a good job. So I hope they keep using her more. I, I can't explain it. Yeah, Mar- Mary Chifo. Yeah, she's she's got a good screen presence. Plus, I don't know if it's just the way they do the, the camera work, but either she's gigantic. Or or they just do really good camera work, because she was towering over Cornwall. Oh, I saw her in one of the, like, after Trek things. She's huge. It's like the whole Brianna Tarth thing. It's like, Brianna Tarth is tall, but Gwendolyn Christie's also, like, six foot four. Uh, let's see. According to this, she is six foot. Yeah. She's she's a, a tall lady. Yeah, she is. She's uh, built, she, too. She's... Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't fight her. <laughs> Certainly not if she's got a batleth or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. These new batleths are pretty crappy looking. Oh, I don't. I, I don't agree. I think they look really different, and I can understand not appreciating the design, but they still look pretty deadly. Yeah, but you know, you give Klingon a piece of wood, and it's deadly. That's true. Um, so speaking of of female screen presences, do you guys see the trailer for the next episode? <laughs> Seem to be a lot of strippers. <laughs> Yeah, so are they going to Orion? I don't know. Or Riza? 
it looked it looked like they had something to do with the Orion Syndicate, which I think would be really interesting if somehow they got involved in the war. That would be a weird pull, yeah. The the weird thing about the Orions is I know there's the Orion Syndicate, but at one point in the 23rd century, there was like an Orion Empire of some kind. And they were always neutral, but mm-hmm. I like neutral to everybody, but they were one of those like hostile to everybody around them, not taking sides. So I've always I've been kind of wondering, I'm like maybe I'm wondering if they're going to do something very Star Trek history is they're going to go to Kronos, but it's not just a federation. Maybe there's another enemy of the Klingons out there because it sounds like with what they hinted at last episode, the 24 houses are basically attacking in every direction they can. Maybe it's something that you said a little bit ago, Derek or Jeremy, about how in the Terran Empire, you know, Voke is the resistance leader. And somehow in this case, the Federation's finding that the Klingons have attacked everybody just like the Terran Empire did. So there's more people pissed at them than just the Federation. Yeah, I think it's very likely. And if you think about who the Orions are, they are built on their their trade system and being able to earn money as merchants. And it's not necessarily the most uh, up and up, uh, you know, in, uh, opportunities out there, but that's what it's based off of. And can they be financially successful if the war waging is completely inconsistent without really any direction or thought process, just destruction everywhere. You know, it's like the Ferengi. The Ferengi, you know, later, of course, have very advanced technology. They would not like a war like this. Unless they were war profiteering and selling arms. But that's that was the a thing, big part though. of the Force Awakens. You're, you're totally the right. Last Jedi. And the Ferengi would if the war was consistent. Profitable. That's the thing, right? Like, in the Dominion War... I'm sure the Ferengi were selling tons of weapons to the Romulans, the Klingons, and the Federation, right? But in this case, you have 24 groups of of army vessels, military vessels, destroying anything that they can find that's not Klingon. You've got the Federation trying to survive. I don't think that the Ferengi would find any profit well, in Something that. about the way they're, do, they're filming Discovery with the recent episodes about how the Federation's been losing the war... Some significant things are going to have to happen, and I don't know if they're going to just do the the the, uh, the hand wave time timeline reset. I think that'd be a little too cheesy and too cheap. But one thing, like they've already taken twenty percent of the Federation or something like that, right? They've killed untold thousands or millions of Federation colonists and civilians and citizens. They've destroyed bases. They've destroyed star bunch of fleets. The way the war is now, it doesn't end in any way where the Federation's ever going to forgive the Klingon Empire. It's like Germany after World War One, when, you know, in 1919 at the peace deal, when the French are like, look, we don't have a peace. We've got a, a truce for 20 years. And so that's like something's going to have to happen to really jolt the Federation back to prime status, because right now they're not, not at all. Well, well I mean, there, there could be a clue in the title of the next episode, which is, Will You Take My Hand? Yeah. Could be a marriage. I mean, there's got to be something that happens. <laughs> there's got to be something that happens that ends the war without the Federation completely collapsing in on itself. There's there's a lot that feels like it needs to happen, but there's a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, where are the Constitution class vessels? There should be at least twelve. Which of were them. very powerful when they were first released. I mean, they were. There's been stories and books and shows about how powerful they really were. 
You know, so where are they? Are, are, have a lot of them been destroyed? Like, where is the Enterprise when all this is going on? I mean, I know this show is not about Enterprise, about the Enterprise, and that's fine, but there is a war where Earth is literally on the edge of its own solar system being attacked by the enemy, and Constitution-class ships are nowhere to be found. Oh, man, if the Enterprise-A shows up in next week's episode... Well, it would be the original, the original Enterprise. Oh, what? Okay. Yeah. Not, this, not Archer's no, not, Enterprise. In no, between. No, no, this the is, NX. In between. Sorry. <laughs> The yeah. se- this would be the, se- the the original 1701 Enterprise under command of Christopher Would it be Pike, Pike or April? This would be Pike okay, at this yeah, point. The 50s. And I'd be okay if they just do like a little, I don't know, like, hey, the Enterprise is in here. Because, you know, the Enterprise D was in DS9 a few times. I don't mind that. Because you're right, the show's not Star Trek Enterprise. It's Star Trek Discovery. Well, it doesn't even necessarily need to be the Enterprise. Show me a Constitution-class starship at one of these battles. Yeah, it could be the USS Constitution. There you go. It could be. It could easily be the Constitution. It was one right? of the first ones. Um, it absolutely was. There were 12, at the time, there were 12 Constitution-class ships built. One was the Enterprise, one was the Defiant. There were 10 more ships. Yeah. So, you know, just show one at Earth or at a Starbase or at a battle. I mean, there. I don't... Recall there being one at the Battle of the Binary Stars. Uh, there was not one at the Binary Stars, no. You know, so I just, I feel like that's, that needs some explaining. There, there needs to be some explanation for why the most powerful advanced ships in the fleet are well, nowhere especially to be seen. because you've been, True. you've been good to remind us, Derek, that this is the prime timeline. This is canon. And the creators of the show have gone out of their way multiple times to go, this is part of the Star Trek history. That you are already familiar with. It's not a new Kelvin timeline. It's the prime timeline. And if they're acknowledging mm-hmm. that, like you said, it doesn't have to be the Enterprise. It could be the Constitution. It could be the Defiant. It could be the Lexington or whatever the first 12, one of the first 12 were. Maybe the Klingons, maybe they're using them in hit and run strikes or they're using them poorly. And maybe that's something Giorgio does. Maybe Giorgio's like, look, you've got 12 powerful battlecruisers type vessels. Give me those 12 and I will give you a victory that's worth knowing. And maybe that's what she does. And the reason I say yeah. that is, you know, I'm, I'm reading a history book on World War One, and when tanks were first introduced, they were used in a stupid manner. They were used to support infantry one-on-one. And then the British were like, what if we get 500 of them and put them together and just throw them at the Germans? And they're like, wait, this is a good <laughs> idea. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll do something cool. like that. Because I'm getting glimpses of historical stuff with the way they're doing Discovery and some of the combat the surgical strike on Kronos to try to rebuild faith and rebuild hope and all this stuff. I'm like, that's straight out of world war two. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting, we're getting pretty deep into speculation. Do you guys want to wrap up? Yeah. No, yeah. I want to um, continue talking discovery. I, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Look, I, I do apologize if we, if we, especially me hammer a little too much on the whole Canon thing. I know Canon has kind of become an annoying term for a lot of people, but, um, you know, like Greg said, they've gone out of their way to say that it will all make sense. And, you know, if they wanted to throw it in a separate timeline, then I wouldn't have to ask any of these questions. Um, you know, so I just... Uh, what is the point of having a Star Trek podcast if we don't harp on canon? <laughs> I, I'm with you both. I think it's important to talk about. You know, but it is a complicated I mean, conversation. It's not important to talk about in in the grand scheme of things, but it's, we're going to talk about it. Star Trek is important to my personal morale. So talking Star Trek canon is True. important to me. Look, I mean, when you think about 
what what the timelines look like. You know, you of course have the quote prime timeline. And then you have the Kelvin timeline, which is the three J.J. Abrams movies. Uh, but then, you know, there's also some people that believe that Enterprise is actually in what they call the first contact timeline that has to do with when the Borg crashed in the Arctic uh, in the past in the movie Star Trek First Contact and because of the Enterprise Ooh. episode Regeneration. So, you know, there could be three more timelines. There's the Mirror Universe, of course. There's Yesterday's Enterprise timeline. There's the All Good Things alternate future. There's countless alternate timelines. Parallels, the TNG episode, showed us exactly what that could look like. Um, yeah. So I think it's you know just it's important to put everything in context. And it's hard to know now whether or not J.J. Abrams will put the his first two Trek movies in the Cloverfield timeline now that that's pretty much whatever he wants. <laughs> Star Trek Cloverfield, I knew it. And hey, CBS Paramount, here's your I'd here's your it. hint. If we didn't care about the shows or the characters, we wouldn't care about canon. So you're you're, you're doing something right. That's true. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've said this uh, many times. I'm going to continue to say it because I think it's only becoming more true. The cast is fantastic. The cast is the best best part of the show to me. Yeah, absolutely. They're all incredibly strong. I still want to see at the end of the next episode, like they fix whatever's going wrong, and then they use the the spore drive to just jump to post Dominion War. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's just like Cisco's like, "Hey guys, what's up?" You know, I really thought I thought they were going to do something like that when they jumped in the yeah, last episode. Back, yeah, he's so like hopeful. But it was like, sir, we overshot. And I'm like, by how much? By how much? By how much? <laughs> 200 years. 300 years. Actually, they could have made it worse. They jump right into the middle of the Dominion War when the Federation's in full retreat again. And they're like, we've, we've gone from one <laughs> hell to another. And it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right. Well, maybe this is a good place then to wrap things up. We've got one more episode left. Um, I also want people to know if you are in the Kansas City area... Uh, the weekend of February 17th, please come out to Planet Comic Con in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. We will be hosting our first live episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts, where we will be wrapping up Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery, and we hope that we will have a lovely audience there to talk with us about some things. Um, and, yeah. Unfortunately, I will not be making it because I am going to be moving to Los Angeles that weekend. You are, which I am really sad that you're leaving us physically, because uh, we, we, I like I like spending time with you, man. It's been fun, but uh, it's an exciting opportunity for you. And in the games industry again, I'm so I'm a, I'm a little I'm a little jealous. I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> I'm a little jealous. Um, but uh, but we will have um, we will have Ray, who is a co-host on Screen Heroes. She's also on Costume Couture. She's known as Siren Ray Cosplay. She will uh, be filling in for Jeremy with us on the panel to round it out, Greg, myself, and Ray. Um, she's been watching the show with me, and she will have a booth at the convention as well, which is probably where I will be most of the convention. So, you know, she'll, she'll fill in for you, Jeremy. I'm sure she will. Uh, I mean, it's good to have that gender balance, too, so at least we'll have that. I agree. I agree. But, uh, yeah, where's everybody on the social media? I'm at Zen Munkin on Twitter. And I am at the Star Trek dude. And I'm at the underscore Bittersteel. Another successful week. So, everybody, we already have our outro that you're going to be hearing in a couple seconds. But want to thank you again for listening to us at Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. 
Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, and anywhere you can use an RSS feed. Follow us on social media at Heroes Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. And you can also email us at contact at heroespodcast.com. Engage. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.